Pod Save the Queen! Hello and welcome to Pod Save the Queen. I'm your host, Zoe Forsey, and I'm joined this week by a very special guest. I'm joined by Inspector Ken Wharf uh, to talk about his new book, Diana Remembering the Princess. So hi, Ken. How are you? Welcome to the show. Uh, good morning. It's great actually be to refer to as an inspector 20 odd years since I left the police, but I don't mind that. Um, that's You've fine. got to keep yeah. it. It's a great title. I would be <laughs> I would be using that at every opportunity yeah, given. Yeah, well, you could say, well, the inspector calls. You never know. <laughs> so talk to me. So Diana, remembering the princess, uh, is out now. And the kind of the, the you know description of it is explores the legacy of Diana, her influence on the monarchy and on her sons and wider social attitude. So tell me first off kind of how this book came about. Yeah, well the, well, the book came about, I I can't claim total responsibility for this because, um, you know, I we, we I wrote it with a, a very good friend of mine, a lady called Ros Coward, who incidentally um, wrote and edited, scripted up the book for the Diana Foundation in 2002. Uh, and although she uh, will say that she never met Diana, she was in a very uh, interesting position because she, she, for the making of that book, um, met upwards of two, 300 friends of Diana. So it has a, a completely interesting insight into a side of Diana's life that I actually didn't have. So what I think is good, well, what I like about the book is that it, there are two of us writing 12 chapters, 13 chapters to commemorate the 25th anniversary. And we're both coming from two different directions, um, but both of us reflecting upon you know, Diana's short life. And here we are now 25 years on, and, um, you know, Diana is still being, you know, talked about, notably by her two sons. But, um, you know, who would have thought that 25 years on, we would still be um, remembering Diana and talking about her. Um, and that's quite unusual because I, I don't recall that memory, um, talking about other members of the royal family so long after their death. I mean, take the Queen Mother, for example, you know, a great woman that she was. Um, very little has been said about her since her death so many years ago, but in complete contrast to that, that Diana is still talked about, not only by her two sons, I said, but also by, you know, the public at large, who still have this fascinating interest in this woman that, you know, did in in some way, um, not that she deliberately set out to modernise the family, her very action, her style, um, was a very modernising one. And I think that's what a lot of people remember. Now, you worked with Diana. You were her police protection officer for six years. What period was that? I'm going to, I'm going to test your memory now. <laughs> what years right. were that? Uh, was that? No, well, actually, I, I sort of went, uh, went there in 86, 87. And uh, it's interesting. People often ask me, you know, why, why did I go or transfer to royalty protection? Um, at that particular time, I, I was an inspector in North London. Um, policing the inner, inner city disturbances of, of Tottenham um, that, that was fairly uh, wide within the United Kingdom, riots in, in uh, Brixton, Toxteth, Liverpool, Birmingham. I mean, it was a, a pretty, you know, rough period of, of policing. And I think, you know, for the economy under the Margaret Thatcher regime, then, of course, coupled with that, we had the miners dispute. So there's quite a lot of unrest within the country at that time. And I, I became rather disillusioned with policing. And um, as a result of that, um, I was accepted for royalty protection in the mid-80s with a specific uh, role to look after the young princes, William and Harry, who were then aged five and three, respectively. 
And um, that's where I spent the remaining 16 years of, of my career. But I'll always remember the first ever meeting with Diana. And this was at Sandringham, uh, one of the Queen's palaces, stately homes in Norfolk, uh, a much favoured residence of uh, Edward VII. And um, I remember driving up to Sandringham one morning and being ushered and escorted into a, a room by a very attentive butler and uh, who said, oh, this is Inspector War from London, ma'am. And Diana looked at me, shook my hand and said, I don't envy you looking after my two children. They can be a <laughs> bloody nuisance. And um, I, I just remember William, because it's so vivid in my memory, that turned around off this piano stool and, and mumbled something in the just William way. Um, I'm not a ruddy nuisance, he said, in this sort of burbling childhood way. And then Harry, who was standing on a table, <laughs> he's stamenizing these lilies, a vase of royal lilies, said something, mumbled as a three-year-old, fell off the table. Um, Diana was livid at this. And then, of course, they both ran out, as two young boys would, being pursued by their mother. And I was stood there. I hadn't said a thing. <laughs> so all my all my images and... and um, about how one should speak to a member of the royal family and how how apart from us they, they were or are, were, um, suddenly I realised there was something rather normal about this. Anyway, Diana did return and said, look, I'm so sorry about that. You see what I mean? And what was interesting, that I had, you, you, it was as though I'd actually known her for a long time. It was like speaking to a sister. It's like speaking to a neighbour or somebody you might meet in the shop and have a discussion. There was There, was, there were no barriers there. And, and that, interesting enough, was, was her style. And that was in part really why I think she was so popular, because she um, embraced all the goodness in life. And, you know, people particularly, I mean, she could talk and, and, and converse with people across a broad political spectrum, but primarily, you know, the sort of the man and woman in the street. And she made them feel special. That was what was so important about her, but that beginning um, just got better. And, and it was a, an indeed a privilege to work with someone like Diana. I, you know, that is a, a memory for a, a long, long time. And that's what I think is so amazing about the role that you played and the kind of insight you had. Obviously, we all saw her and saw the kind of public image that she gave off, but you got to see that she was just like that in real life as well, wasn't she? Behind the scenes, we, every, you know, there's so many stories about kind of what a loving mum she was and how she, you know, kind of besotted she was with her boys. But you got to really see all of that, which must have been really special to be kind of in those bits. And as you said, it must be very difficult looking after kids and protecting children who are running around and don't particularly want to be told they can't do yeah, she said, little boys anyway can be a bit of a nightmare, <laughs> let alone when they're, you've got to be. <laughs> yeah, but I think that with, 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 with her, I mean, I think a lot of people imagined outside of royalty, you know, thought, well, you know, they're a very privileged bunch. You know, they've, they've got a nursery, they've got nannies. You know, why would Dinah worry about, you know, looking after them? And I think it's a fair point because that's, you know, what a lot of privileged people do. They, they, they pay big money to have nannies to look after their children in those formative years. And in Diana's case, that was necessary because of her uh, her role, because of her her engagements, both in this country and abroad. So you know, for most part, she couldn't. But whenever there was a downtime, and of course there was, there was a lot of downtime, you know, that Diana's priority at that point was is to be seen not to abandon her children, but be part of their upbringing. 
and uh, she would spend as much time in the in the nursery as anywhere else you know sitting with a nanny cooking their food going to the kitchen and the chef you know deciding and saying to the chefs look william wants this he he wants uh, bjp baked jacket potatoes and fish and beans or whatever so she was very much a hands-on mother in that sense uh, even though her role was completely and totally different from the vast majority of people on earth and i think that was you know that was very much her role now you the book is filled with lots of stories that we haven't heard before and lots of kind of new memories uh, from both yourself and from Roz what was the kind of why have you decided to share some of these tales now that perhaps maybe you've kept yourself previously well actually most of the the anecdotes in some shape or form have, have actually found their way into the public domain I mean because over the last 20 years I mean I've I've lectured and given talks you know, to to quite a number of, you know, charities, quite a number of, in a number of occasions. So occasionally all these sort of anecdotes seek seek out. Um, but I think it's important, you know, to sort of, it's all very easy to talk about, you know, the history and the role that Diana does and the, this event that she opens or this charity she gets engaged with. But all the things, you know, the, there's a real sort of aspect of, of real life that comes into play. I mean, um, one of the, interesting anecdotes which i is not in this book surprisingly enough but i will tell you now just about how her style how she operates i remember once going to to manchester and uh, we'd been there many many times before and the, and the sort of setup is very much the same you know um and she remembers it and she said to me in the plane going to manchester oh i hope kim we've not got that driver again so i said oh what was wrong with him man she said oh well he keeps talking <laughs> i said so i said well, that's all right. We can shut him up when we get there. And we, we arrived at Manchester Airport and there was the convoy by the plane. And sure enough, there was the same driver. So I thought, oh, God. So we got in the car and uh, he, he started off as I would, you know, you're right, ma'am. Nice to see you. And I said, Don't, just cool it. Oh, sorry. He said, anyway, off we went. And Diana smiled at me from the back seat and we got into the centre of Manchester and there were masses of people, as there always were. And then she's sort of working the sort of line down and, um, you know, chatting to people. And uh, we always overran our time because Diana could got so involved with people. It was extraordinary. Anyway, as we're walking along, there was this rather frail little voice came from the back of the crowd. And she said, excuse me, ma'am, excuse me. She said, oh, Ken, get the policeman to get that lady forward. So I said to this policeman, can you ask that lady to come forward? And she came forward with two walking sticks. And Diana said, what on earth are you doing here? She says, haven't you got a seat? Oh, no, she said, don't worry. She said, I've been waiting for three or four hours to see you. Oh, my God, she said, you don't need to do that with me. She said, but what's, you know, are you, are you okay? She says, oh, yeah, she said, I've got something to tell you. She said, oh, what's that? She said, my son is your driver. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, I've never oh. seen Diana <laughs> laugh as much in my life. You know, she got that sort of very, very particular arched back and this sort of this this love is almost like a castrated ostrich um, and I think half of the street heard Diana but of course what I knew then was that she was dying to get back in the car to tell this driver <laughs> when we did get back here this is so funny he she said oh hello Brian I think his name was she said and of course he's now rather nervous about saying anything she said you'll never guess what and he looked at me I said you know you carry on he said what's that she said, I've just met your mother. And he went, bloody hell. 
<laughs> oh, we didn't have problems amazing. with Brian again. <laughs> that was funny. I'll never forget that. Now, um, so obviously you saw Diana's experience within the royal family. Obviously, I know you're coming to it from a different point now, but how do you think that compares to the experience that the kind of new generation of royal wives has had? So uh, talking about the Duchess of Cambridge and the Duchess of Sussex. Well, I, lots of comparisons have been made with, or uh, are made with, with Diana, Catherine and, and Meghan. I think dealing with, 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 with Diana's time, really, um, you know, Diana entered the royal family in the sort of the early 80s, which, you know, is a long time ago. And um, it was a different royal family then. And, and Diana acknowledged that. And, um, you know, tried to break through the sort of the stiffness or the formality of, of, of what royalty was. And I think she was very successful at that, primarily because she was herself. I mean, as I've just explained, her, her ability to communicate with anybody in a genuine way. She was compassionate and, and very sympathetic to people, for, for people. And, um, you, you know, unfortunately for her, you know, she was in, in a marriage that wasn't going too well. And so she had to fight with the the unhappiness of that. But despite that unhappiness in the marriage, I, I never once did she ever did that ever affect her ability to represent the Queen on literally hundreds of uh, engagements in her short short life. Um, but of course, what she did, she became incredibly popular in the process. And that's one thing that the royal family had a bit of a problem with. You know, they in a way, and I can understand it, were rather jealous of Diana's popularity. And the sad thing is, and this is purely and simply my view, it, that if only they had embraced that popularity and, and said to Diana, listen, we're so grateful you're here. We appreciate the work you do. And, you know, I know that the, the, the people of this country love it and abroad, but none of that was ever said. And so, you know, towards the end of her life, you know, she, she would say to me, um, you know, it's a shame, isn't it? I do all this, and not that I want people to slap me on the back daily, but it would be nice if somebody occasionally came up to me and said, look, we really appreciate what you're doing. And I think, you know, that, I think, was acknowledged by a lot of people. Now, you know, her duty was a duty to the Queen, um, the monarch, and that, that was her real purpose in life. And she wanted to support her husband, the Prince of Wales. And, of course, she tried that at the beginning. But what happened with her was, particularly in Australia, for example, um, you know, the entire media, you know, wanted to follow Diana. Why? Because there was the story. You know, there was this attractive young woman, a princess, that engaged in the public in a way that provided stories and copy for newspaper editors, et cetera, et cetera. And they weren't that concerned with what the prince was doing, you know, perhaps in a more business sense, that was equally important. But the story was with Diana. And this particular trip to Australia, when she took William as a baby to Australia, you know, the prince made this extraordinary speech uh, after the first or second day when he said, um, he said, oh, he said, it's great to be here in Australia. He said, the next time I come, I'll, I'll bring two wives. And I put one either side, and I'll just walk down the middle. Well, rather funny and entertaining, maybe. But actually, there was a real sense of, seriousness there and i think this was the beginning of what i think plagued him um you know for the for the rest of, of diana's life um plus of course the uh, the, the unhappiness and the, the, his relationship with camilla parker bowles there was a hell of a lot going on here
But both, interestingly enough, you know, were able to carry out their their, their official raw duties. And it wasn't until the, the late 80s when, you know, the media and you know, royal correspondence began to really open up the chinks of this of this marriage. But um, but Diana had always, um, you know, performed her role admirably simply because she was there to represent the Queen. Now, when you come on to uh, Catherine and, and William, you know, William met met his wife at university. There was a sort of cooling off period at some point. And, you know, by now, of course, the world is a much wider place. We, we, we're now very media savvy. It's, uh, um, you know, everyone has a mobile phone. We're, we're technically far more advanced now than we were in the Diana days. And, you know, William and Catherine, you know, are, are sort of educating their children in a style very similar, if not identical to what he had. And, and Catherine made it quite clear that um, she was there to support her husband and played her role, her profile, that is, very cleverly, I think. Um, but, of course, the relationship was different. Here was a relationship, and still is, that, that is based on a love for each other. So there isn't this sort of the, 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 the agony that existed with Diana and Charles in those days. So there's the comparison. With Meghan, I think it's not dissimilar, um, you know, Harry found Meghan, um, and here was a, a, a woman, a, a divorcee, an American, and a, a lady of, of, of mixed heritage. And they get married at Windsor. And the same thing happened. You know, her popularity was so great that I, I, I sense that perhaps the royal family didn't particularly like it at that time. But for personal reasons, um, and we, we're, none of us are really sure as, as to what happened when Harry and Meghan decided to leave initially for Canada, and now they're, they're sort of settled in, in, in America, in California. So a lot has happened since the, the, the Diana days, but I think all of them, uh, I, I think, were certainly, or the women in their lives, were seen there to support their husbands in the role, acknowledging the fact that they, in Diana's case, the prince, um, in Kate's case, uh, William, you know, were senior leading figures of the British monarchy and their role was to support their husbands. And I think with Meghan and, and Harry, that's certainly, Meghan and uh, Catherine to an extent, that's true. With Diana, it was much more difficult because um, regrettably there wasn't that, that union of the two of them, that's Diana and Charles, to really make it work, which is a shame because I do think and feel that uh, Charles and Diana were, had the real possibility of being great ambassadors for the United Kingdom. And you mentioned about Meghan and Harry's new life in the US. And obviously there has been Harry's legal actions against the UK government and the ongoing row about his security and paying for it. What's your view on, on that? Well, Harry and his security is, is an interesting one. I, I personally, I think he's overplayed this. I, I don't know who advised him um, to effectively take uh, uh, legal action against the British government and the Metropolitan Police, I think that was a very unwise thing to do because that, in essence, just raised the negative publicity. Um, you know, he's a prince of the realm. He, you can't change that. He will be Prince Harry for the rest of his life unless he changes to, to decide to change that. And despite the fact that he was living in Canada, uh, in California, you know, no one's barring him from the United Kingdom. Of course not. And, you know, had he you know, decided to come, which he did, of course, to see the Queen and also 
transited on to see his the games in Holland. Um, you know, rather than make a noise about the wants the full package, you know, the British government and the Metropolitan Police would, of course, provided some sort of liaison to work with his own security, albeit private, because that would be necessary. And and so, you know, with that, I, I can't see why he was insistent that he had this sort of full package of a team from Scotland Yard, when in essence, he wasn't really entitled to it, being a non-working member of the British royal family. But, you know, I think the government and the Metropolitan Police would have seen that, you know, it would have been wrong to allow this man who was, you know, a global icon, a, you know, a celebrity in his own right, to sort of just step ashore the United Kingdom without any protection whatsoever. And so that was never the case. The, the, the government and the police would have provided a liaison, a security to guarantee his safety and that of his wife and children. So I think, my own view is, I think Harry rather overplayed that. And I think that was a mistake on his part. And do you think this is something that could potentially rumble on for ages? You know, obviously the kind of the, the first case ended and then there was a second. Do you think this is something that will continue or do you see kind of an end to it? it that's an interesting question. I, I, I personally think that it, it won't rumble on. I think it will stabilise and I think he will realise that you know, if he does come back, that, of course, there will be a protection there to, for, for him. The, the, the country do have a responsibility um, to make sure that he's safe, and like with anybody, really, but particularly because he's a, a prince of, you know, the United Kingdom. Uh, although he's not in receipt of that protection from Scotland Yard at the moment, you know, as I say to you, that the government and the police will have a responsibility to make sure that nothing untoward comes toward him and his family. So I think he'll realise that. And I quite where this act, this legal action will end up, I'm not certain, but um, I don't see the government or the police for that matter sort of caving in on it. So I think Harry will realise that, um, you know, he just have to work a little bit harder and understand that, uh, you know, the government and the police are here to help him and they will do so. As somebody who knew the royal, you know, the royal brothers when they were younger and when they were children, how do you see their kind of different personalities as they're playing out now as as adults and fathers of their own? Obviously, that you know, very different characters they were through their kind of teenage years, weren't they? We saw William, who was a lot more the public side anyway, was a lot more kind of serious and very much knew his uh, what was ahead. But how you know, did those reflect from an early age, or is that something you've noticed as they've as they've grown up? Well, I I went to um, Kensington Palace when I, I told you when they were five and three respectively and you know that's they, they were very young young boys and what was very clear to me was that 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 harry was the sort of the joker the entertainer the mischief maker and um you know you get this in families you know one's going to be you know that one won't be so uh outgoing um and so 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 on this is what happens with with children in the family and this was the case. William was, even as a five-year-old, was far more serious. I mean, at, at five, I don't think he had any idea who he was. Although that 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 changed quite rapidly, because there's a a, a great story. I mean, I think he must have been, must have been about seven or eight. I can't remember, but it was young, traveling down to to Highgrove, their house in Gloucestershire, one Friday evening. They clearly had a bit of a spat, the both of them, before we left. So they were refereed in the back seat by the nanny the, the, the nanny Olga Pell sadly no longer with us but she was you know a wonderful lady um, 
you know, of age that sort of almost had a, a, a strand of Victorianism about her in dealing with William and Harry. And they had an argument. So eventually she told them to shut up. And Diana was driving. I was in the front seat. And then suddenly Harry pulled out of his seat at the back, leant across Nanny and says to William, it's all right for you. He said, you'll be king one day and I won't, therefore I can do what I want. And I, I, Diana's face, I looked around and Diana looked at me and said, where the hell did he get that from? Um, but he did. I mean, so there they, they both know their role as children. But, but in a way, I suppose, William was rather jealous of Harry. I don't know because of that fact that uh, he might be king one day. It was just that, again, it was Harry was the, the joker, the, man, the, the boy that was popular. And, um, you know, I think that sort of sibling rivalry happens in most families. But as they moved on through life, I don't think much changed there. But of course, now that they're, they're both married and, and in two different um, areas of, the, of, of life, really, um, William clearly um, and a king in waiting and that the popularity of their relationship is well is well charted. Um, Harry, on the other hand, is now sort of marooned in California allegedly enjoying it, but with no real plans, as I see it, to return to the United Kingdom. But who knows? I, I'm not so certain. I don't think anybody knows. A, a lot of people have written things about their life and will continue to do so because they're so popular. But I think to predict the outcome of, of the Meghan and Harry saga is a difficult one. Um, he naturally is protecting his wife, which has to be admired. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that is perhaps one of the reasons why uh, he decided to leave the United Kingdom when he did. I disagree with one of his reasons when he didn't, when he said that he didn't want his wife Meghan to suffer the, the incidences and um, drama that his mother had. Um, and, you know, slightly mentioning the press at that point. Diana, you see, on the other hand, learned to live with it, found it difficult at times, did find the media invasive in the same way that she found people like me invasive. But it goes back to this sense of duty again. That's what they were there for. And actually, despite all that, and I know Diana was unhappy towards the very end of her life, um, within the royal family, that is, you know, actually enjoyed most of what she did in the early 80s up until the early 90s and, and understood that. But her reason for departing was simply that her marriage now had irretrievably broken down. John Major had announced the separation in 92. So what was left? Not a lot, really. So Diana decided that she was out. And so just kind of, obviously, one of the big focuses on the book, uh, which is really lovely, is looking at Diana's legacy. And as we kind of briefly touched on earlier, how people are still now, you know, 20, you know, 25 years later, still talking about the causes that she supported um, and with Harry and William very much you know they mention her in speeches a lot they talk about you know they've carried on lots of parts of her work why what do you think it was about Diana that has given her this such an impact well I think you've 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 actually nailed it in a sense that that and as, as, as the very beginning of this discussion you know, part of Diana's legacy is the fact that her two sons are, you know, repeatedly talking about her because they've modelled, in essence, their life on the work of their mother and the memory of their mother. You know, when the Prince of Wales, a few years ago now, um, was given a clear 
uh, nod from the Queen that you know things have to change that he must take on greater responsibilities. Um, you know he wanted very much you know his two sons to be part of this change, and I think so to this day he he has this vision of of modifying the royal family, trimming it down. I think in his words, and William and Harry are very much part of of his machine to do that. Sadly, at the moment, he's lost one third of that with Harry, who uh, is on the other side of the Atlantic. But when this happened, both William and Harry, you know, looked at their charitable work, you know, what they could increase their own work at that time. And of course, they make reference and use the template of their own mother. They get deeply involved in uh, the homeless, deeply more involved with the dispossessed. And, and in, other, in other words, you know, people that in this, in this world and this, this country you know, that, that that are less fortunate than others. So, and this is where the royal family comes into its own because by being involved in charitable work, their, their titles, you know, just generate huge amounts of cash, you know, and it's money that makes life better for so many people, as was evidenced with Centrepoint when, you know, Diana was part of that, William's now part of Centrepoint. And all the charities that she got involved in, I saw for myself just how important it is to have a, a, a working role as a head of that charity that can generate the finances that gives a life, you know, you know, to, to people that without that probably wouldn't happen. And um, you know, I think William acknowledges that. Harry acknowledges that, and I'm sure he'd like to get involved with that. He is, in his own way, involved in his Invictus Games and all his military activities, which is, you know, roughly the same. And so, you know, that is why you know Diana is so, you know constantly being remembered and talked about and you talk about her charity work I, i'll never forget uh in the mid 80s when diana went to see the queen which she did on a very regular basis you know diana liked the queen she was very proud to be part of you know that working uh family in that sense and i don't think anyone could criticize and nobody ever ever has actually criticized the work that diana did but she reached a point in the mid 80s when you know, having ticked all the boxes of opening fates here and charities there and so forth, wanted to get something a bit more meaningful and had met people like Sir Alton John and people involved in the, the, the AIDS crisis of, uh, of the mid-80s. Well, Diana said to the Queen, I'd like to get involved in and, and trying to make more funds available to find a, 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 a cure for AIDS. And, and, of course, that didn't go down too well because the Queen... And Diana told me this immediately she'd left speaking to the Majesty and said, look, you know, why do you want to get involved in that, said the Queen? You know, why don't you do something nice? Well, that was a difficult one for Diana because, you know, the Queen wasn't going to persuade Diana to change her mind. But if we look what happened, Diana's involvement in the AIDS crisis, you know, brought her some serious negativity in the media, but she pursued with it. And uh, as a result of that, I, I don't think it's possible to actually explain how many millions of pounds Diana raised through her patronage of so many aged charities. But the end result of that is, of course, that now we, we don't talk about it because a cure was found and a lot of lives were saved. And I, I because of, of Diana's direct input in that. And interestingly enough, Harry himself has, has actually picked up the, the some of the charities involved in AIDS to this day. So, you know, that was quite a powerful move on Diana's part to get involved in something that did bring her negative publicity, but nevertheless, you know, it showed that 
you know, a member of the royal family was prepared to do something that wasn't necessarily popular at the time because the end result was so, so positive. And you mentioned at the kind of start of that point, sorry, I'm kind of jumping all over the place a bit here. You mentioned that you say that Charles at the moment has lost a third of his kind of, you know, the team that he saw taking forward. Do you do you think Harry and Meghan may return at some point then? Personally, I do. And I, I base that on sort of really gut reaction, really. I, I, I just cannot see them living in living forevermore in in um, California. I, I, it's clear to me that, that 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 Harry is not quite a fish out of sea over there. I mean, he's getting involved in charitable work. He, he has these so-called attachments to Netflix and, and, and other companies. Quite where they'll end up, we don't know. But, you know, I, I just think his involvement with his military charities, quite how he runs that on the other side of the Atlantic, I don't know. But I just have this feeling that... Um, you know that he could well be back in in a, in a new role with or without Meghan. I, I I honestly don't know. But to answer your question, yes, I do think that he will be back in some form, as as part of his his, his father's um, plan for, you know, trimming down the monarchy. Because within the next decade, that is going to happen, and you know, the king, uh, the the prince will become king, Camilla will become queen. And we'll be looking at a new monarchy now, a different monarchy that moves itself forward into this century and beyond. But of course, close by on that is, of course, the role that William will have. You know, will he become the Prince of Wales? Well, probably yes. But, you know, could William become king before his father? I mean, that's something that is discussed, you know, not openly, but people murmur that 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 uh, proposition. And um, I wouldn't rule that out either, personally. So there's a lot happening, there's a lot changing. Um, but, you know, one thing, the prince will trim down. And when you look at senior members of the royal family currently, the, the Duke of Kent, the Gloucesters, Princess Alexandra, not forgetting the Princess Royal, uh, and, and uh, Edward, uh, Andrew is not going to be part of that, 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 that change, for sure, for all the reasons that we taught, we know and have discussed. But I think it's a very interesting period. Now, in the next decade, certainly, and that's one thing that will happen. The monarchy will change um, for for good to move the Windsor dynasty into uh, this century and hopefully beyond. And when those changes do come about, obviously, in particular with the Sussexes, there's been a lot has happened. There's been a lot of, you know, obviously the the if all the interviews they've done, Harry's book. When that if we that ever we see that, do you think they will be? Or if it happens, they will be welcomed back with open arms, whether it's in a kind of a full-time role or if it's more just a, you know, kind of a bit moving, working closer together. I can't answer that. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, the fact that, that this this book that we are told will be published soon, whether it be a tell-all book, we don't really know quite to who it's directed, you know, whether it will be seen as a criticism of his father, whether it will be a criticism of Camilla. We don't know. There's a lot of speculation about it. Should he have written the book? Should he be doing this? Well, I don't see why he shouldn't. Um, it's made him very unpopular in the same way that Meghan's interview with Oprah Winfrey was seen or deemed to be an unpopular and unwise thing to have done. Well, Diana did the same thing. You know, She liaised with Andrew Morton in his book and also gave the the infamous Bashir interview in 95. And 
if you look at that, why did Diana do that? Well, Diana did it for one simple reason only, was to make sure that the facts about her life were out there, because at that particular time, she was of the opinion, I think she was right, that there was, you know, a lot of, you know, hiding of, of the true facts as it, so insofar as it affected Diana, because there was a, a, a tendency to protect the prince, which I can see and understand. And Diana was frustrated at not being, of not being able to see the truth about their relationship and, and, and the truth about her. So, you know, she decided, well, look, if, if you're not prepared to help me on this, I'll do it myself. There may be a bit of this with Harry um, in the opera Winfrey, uh, and indeed this, this um, book that's expected this autumn. I think we have to wait and see. And uh, once we know what the facts are and what we know that is written, only then can the debate be made to say, well, look, was this a good or a bad thing? But at the moment, it seems to me that everyone keeps me saying, well, this is not a good idea. Now, just before we finish then, can you please tell me your favourite kind of favourite story from the book or your favourite memory of Diana and the boys? Well, they were all favourite memories, actually, to be honest. There were so many things that uh, we did. I, interestingly, that it is an anecdote, but... Um, I think one of the most amazing things that we did, I mean, Diana was very keen on music, both classical and popular. And um, one particular time in her life, she had an invite with, with her mother uh, and to go to, to Italy to see the great Pavarotti sing um, in Verdi's Requiem in Verona, in the amphitheatre there. Oh, wow. And we managed to, um, to get there without any press intrusion whatsoever, which um, I think was a first for me, and I think it was probably a first for Diana. But anyway, what's, what happened was a bit of a tragedy because Pavarotti came on stage at the very beginning of this uh, uh, piece of music, and suddenly um, the heavens opened. I mean, there was a, a, a rainstorm. I think that in the history of Verona, not going back so many hundreds of years, I think it was about only the second time that it happened to a, to a, a full auditorium, and the concert was cancelled. And it was still raining, and we was we were it, literally her mother, myself, and my colleague and friends of a friend of Diana were all sat underneath this white sheet of tarpaulin, waiting <laughs> for the rain to stop. But it never stopped. So then Diana turned to me. She said, "Well, what are we going to do?" I said, "Well, what do you want to do?" She said, "Well, why don't we go to Venice?" And I said, "Venice? <laughs> I wasn't expecting that." <laughs> and I looked at my Italian colleagues, and they muffled something which clearly wasn't pleasant. So in this thunderstorm, we drove for the next hour and a half to Venice. We arrived there at, I don't know, 11 o'clock. It was still raining. And can you believe the, the police car park was flooded? Um, and we arrived there and the, 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 the lead police car drove into a submerged um, bollard, which pleased Diana immensely. <laughs> found that awfully amusing. Don't think they did. And we then literally chugged chugged around the, the Grand Canal of Venice for about an hour and uh, walked across the uh, St. Mark's Square in, in front of the, 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 the church there. The, it was an extraordinary feeling. And we managed to secure en route a bottle of vino, uh, Pinot Grigio and some fresh croissant and uh, literally chugging around in this thunderstorm in Venice was, was surreal, I must say. But the good thing was that we then walked back across St. Mark's Square, picked up the cars that we were in, drove back to uh, Lake, uh, well, where was it, Lake Garda, I think. No, not Lake Garda, but back to Verona. About two hours sleep, back to London. And it was only 
four days later, I think the, the late James Whitaker um, uh, actually rang me up and, and uh, said to me in his, his amazing accent and voice said, you never told me about bloody Italy. <laughs> and I think he was rather angry about that. But I, that was one of many um, memories that we did with Diana. Um, it what is not funny, but nevertheless, I think it just proved that on occasions, you know, you can do things without, um, you know, the following pursuing media. Oh, what an amazing! That's, it's a proper. That's a proper like adventure story, isn't it? Of kind of just jumping in the car and driving somewhere yeah. and, and running around without anyone noticing. Must have been really, really exciting. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, so, Diana, remembering the princess is out now. And um, thank you to everyone for listening this week. As always, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Pod Save. And until next time, Pod Save the Queen. <laughs> <laughs>